Thank you for listening to this episode of the Following Films podcast, a movie podcast that takes you on a weekly journey into the world of cinema and the minds of the talented individuals who shape it. I'm your host, Chris Maynard, and today we're joined by production designer Gavin Boki. We chat about Gavin's work on the Star Wars prequels, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, The Dark Crystal, Mute, and the Apple TV Plus series, Silo. But before we dive into our conversation with Gavin, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore, where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and in the magic of the cinematic arts. So if you're looking to expand your film, music, or book collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's. There's always something truly wonderful to discover. Have you followed the following films podcast on Spotify? If you have, well, thank you. If you haven't, head on over to Spotify, search for Following Films, and give us a follow. It really does help the show. Season 2 of Silo is currently streaming on Apple TV+. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hi there. Good morning, Gavin. How are you today? Very good. And yourself? Doing good. Doing really good. Uh, I guess good afternoon, good evening. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where you are. I presume you're on the other side, are you? (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, so uh, pr- pretty far away at this point. Well, we, well we've had hot weather, actually, but I imagine you've probably got hotter weather than we have. Well, we're prepared for it, though. Um, you guys, yes. uh, it, when you guys get above 90 there, that's a wildly different situation than in Arizona. Yeah, we can, we can we complain either way, really. Too wet, too hot, <laughs> too whatever. But it's fine. Anyway, How- nice, to sp- nice to speak to you. You as well. How, how are you doing? Do you have air conditioning where you are, or is that? Um, we do have it in the house when we need it. Yes, it's not. Okay. Look, you want it, it? It the the big thing in the UK is that we it, we always come. The trains stop running because there are leaves on the track, right? <laughs> but it's we we don't have extreme weather, so you can't prepare everything yeah. for like minus twenty and a hundred degrees. It's only a few days at a time, so we just get used to it. We like complaining about it. It's fine. Fair enough. <laughs> we we every but everywhere has their thing like that. Yes. For us, it's if we get rain. So if we had if we get two days of rain in a row, the whole city shuts down. So we just don't I know. It's funny. Without that. digressing, I know when I've worked abroad a lot, I often look listen to local radio station, whichever country, uh-huh. and they always complain about. Um, trains, transport, schools, and hospitals. Of course, that, that's the four four things that they complain about. <laughs> you know, but so the, we're, the we're universal all the same truth. Down. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Right. I do appreciate it, man. Um, one of the first things I was struck by when I was looking over not not the silo, but your whole body of work. It was really. I'm curious how digital tools have impacted the work of a production designer because you were really at the forefront of that um and now it's pretty common so could you talk a little bit about how that's impacted your work yeah i think the you know the advent of any technology you know if we i was talking to a friend yesterday you know if you go back to the 40s and 50s you know there was no walkie-talkies or radios and first ad's would be using flags on location yeah you know you know, semaphore or whatever. So I think everything that comes along, you obviously have to adapt it to to best use its its possibilities. Um, and I think now with AI, and we're all looking at little AI uh, bits of software that we can use, and 
Um, again, there'll be elements that will be really useful and elements that probably won't be. But it, it was never an intention to move into that area. It was just a question of the, the projects that I sort of got involved with just in sort of sliding doors moments. Yeah. Began looking in that direction and obviously starting with going back really to young Indiana Jones, um, which is one of my sort of second design jobs. And George was quite interested in introducing digital technology that had been seen mostly in commercials at that time, TV commercials for replication and just giant images and getting that into TV drama, which hadn't really been done before. And I know the intention was to make every episode the same cost as MacGyver for some reason, um, which considering we were a period piece traveling the yeah. world was quite a, a, quite a challenge. But I know Rick McCallum, who who got involved with that show and become the producer with George on the Star Wars, the three Star Wars shows. Um, they didn't even use ILM for those young indie images. They used. I didn't a, realize that. They used a commercials company in San Francisco because it was cheaper than going through the ILM process. They were trying to sort of. So that's quite an interesting sort of side. And George always had this thing: if you could get five or six digital images into a, a, an episode of Young Indy, and if they if they worked ninety five percent, you know, hundred percent, sometimes that was all he wanted to do. He always had a strong uh, you know opinion that you only the audience should only ever see the show once. So if if it works in that one instant, you see the shot. You know, he couldn't account for people digitally going back and looking over every pixel. Of of and he said, that's fine, that's fine. But as long as I know that it works as a piece of drama and storytelling. So then we obviously moved on to on to Star Wars and David Tattersall was the DP, came from Young Indie. And mm -hmm. the question was moving into that sort of digital world of photography. And I know the, the the first things that the two things that really came to the fore when we were looking at those shows was that a you had a monitor on stage, a playback monitor, which was pin sharp, whereas most monitors up to then playback were black and white or color, right. and they just gave you a, a framing. Whereas we could actually look at things on set and see if there was a problem in any finishes or texture, you actually had the image there. You weren't just guessing. And I know we were we were shooting something with a with a fake marble wall feature in it. And normally that's done with paper and splicing and pasting it up. And but we were very careful at looking at that through the this high the high definition monitor, high definition monitor to check this line. So in a way it gave you a security because you weren't worried about seeing rushes in case something didn't work to all intents and purposes. You, you could look at it on the screen to begin with, you know, so you sort of had a, a confidence in it, but, but in the end, it was just another, another toy, another toy. And I know that I started doing 3d work digitally on Phantom Menace probably. And I had a uh, mini CAD was the, was the, a program before Vectorworks, it became Vectorworks. Right. So I was just exploring in that 3D world the very basic basics of 3D design. You imagine 93, we are 94, 95. Um, and I think the first thing I I modeled was um, a very simple layout of Gunga City, which okay. was a but it's a series of bubbles, really. It was nothing more, you know, it wasn't a sophisticated concept design. And I think from that point on. It would just became another tool that 
up to then we were doing white card models, you know, physical mm-hmm. models, which we still do. There's, if we look at Silo, there are hundreds of models we made, but the digital side of it is just running concurrently with it. And the reason I, it, it's almost like sculpting, even in my simple form of 3D, which after 30 years, I'm probably quite good at doing it, but it's still a very minute direction you know there's a little angle that i make work for myself Mm -hmm. and in the end you're just playing around with shapes you know you're 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 very quickly doing very simple models to start with and if i go back to the 80s when i I was an art director you know the process used to be the designer would do a sketch somebody would work up a white card model we'd look at the model that didn't work change that do that another drawing okay change that now another model and you'd keep refining the model Right. Directors looking at it, designers looking at it. Now I feel that that you know from those times I can do all that initial model work sort of digitally and still using vector works. There are many, you know, there are many other 3D programs, you know. It come and te- and Vectorworks is primarily a technical drawing program, but I use its 3D side. Um I mean, ironically, on um, you know, funnily on on Silo, we had three or four concept artists who I work with quite a lot or five of them at some point and each one used a different 3d program i mean it's <laughs> why why they can't all find one yeah so i'd have to so they would take my models my simple models either you know just as an obj or whatever bit because they couldn't all take an obj for some reason so they in in silo it was very different that because it was very architectural i could create a lot of that simple modeling myself but then pass it on to the concept artists who would either enhance the model or enhance the rendering over the top to give it that sort of pizzazz wow factor to it but it was very architectural as I'm, as you can see in terms of it was a building and yeah. um, my, my 3d modeling skills when we did uh, dark crystal that was a lot more organic mm-hmm. and that i'm not quite so good at in terms of the three-dimensional compound curve designs. So we would have a couple of concept artists who are very good 3D sculptors in whatever program they use, taking the ideas that we gave them and, and forming them. But just to cut a long story short, I think each of those things that come along, it takes you a while, a bit like AI now, to try and decide the best way of using it. And it's all about time and speed and money in the end. Well, that's what I was going to ask. That's a curiosity because you mentioned that you have three different people using three different programs. You're using a different program all to get this idea, which is essentially like this almost architecture type program, engineering program being yes. used for the, for this. Because uh, I mean, when I used AutoCAD, it was we were using that for in my engineering classes. And uh, yes, that's I mean, we well, yes, I mean, I came from an engineering background in terms okay. of my college time, and we were using a British standard 308 technical drawing. But the fact that you could dive straight, like in those early 90s days with Minicab, the fact that you could actually produce something in 3D on the screen, however yeah. basic it was, was just like, you know, you could look at it, turn it around, go inside, look here, there and everywhere. And obviously the world of digital world has gone into, you know, Unreal Engine and, and um, getting virtual sets that directors sometimes like to look at. That's another tool. Um, on Jingle Jangle, we did with, we did with Netflix. Um, uh, David uh, E. Talbot, he, he'd never really built sets before. He was a writer and he'd be trying to get this project off the ground. 
And I remember we, we, we had to build a Victorian toy shop and the rest of the street, but we actually had the digital model of the toy shop sort of fully dressed, you know, pretty good yeah. to look at. And we took him into the concept guy's office and we put the headphones on David and he was sort of, sort of looking around, as you do, jumping around upstairs. In, and his wife was there, who's a producer, Lynn. And suddenly David took his the headphones off, started crying and went outside the room. And we were going to Lynn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she said, look, he said, he's been trying to make this show for 14 years. And suddenly you put these this headset on him and he's like in that world. You know, so it became real so, in that uh, moment. Yeah, and it's you know, it wasn't real, real, but it was enough real yeah. for him to understand what that that what he was looking at and what we were going to produce for him. But I'll always keep coming back to the thing. You know, even in my time from the eighties, you know, they were making pretty good films before all this stuff. Yeah, came along. Yeah. You know, and way before me. You know, Gone with the Wind, whatever. You know, there there was always uh, there is always ways of doing it. You know, paintings, foreground miniatures, models, miniatures. It's just now another tool, an incredibly good tool. Um, whether it makes the di- the one interesting thing is, I think from a studio's point of view, it means they can see many more options right. of what they want, and that might come from an insecurity of needing to know what they're paying for, what is happening. Whereas I remember, you know, I was just a munchkin on Jedi with Norman Reynolds designing. And when I look back to that, apart from Joe Johnson, who was doing some sketches and a couple of production illustrators, there were very few design sketches as such. There were little, Norman would do a couple, but then would immediately be grabbed and then made into a model and then made into something else. Yeah. Nowadays, it's sort of, I'm sure if you walk into any art department on a film, you'll just see images <laughs> up everywhere just because they can be done you know they can be done really effectively and really clearly whereas I think maybe in the past before my time people had to make subjective decisions without really knowing yeah there was a bit more of a sort of creative risk and a feel I feel this is right now everything is so much so money orientated not in a bad way you know that's how how the world is that everybody just is so nervous they want to see everything before it's done i remember i did a it, we're not going off off course are we here you no know? no this is perfect this is exactly what i wanted um, yeah this is i great. did i did some pre-concept work with gareth edwards um on the uh, godzilla project sure yeah we did about a six-week period in london and we didn't think the show it wasn't to actually make the show at that time but we put a big presentation together in a in a stage in warner brothers in, in hollywood and it was it, we had a big 40-foot translight of, of of Godzilla, and we had it was very dark and moody. It was almost like going into a museum. It was almost like the presentation of it with animatics. And and Gareth looked at me afterwards and he sort of said, It's almost like we've made the film. It's almost <laughs> the presentation yeah. was so good that well, we have to go, okay, <laughs> we've sort of done it now. You know, on that basis, but that's and then the studio um, immediately approved it, which nobody expected. They thought it was later in the year. I was already committed to something else, so I couldn't do it. But it was interesting how the amount of work and visuals and images we put together in this presentation form, you were almost like watching the film. And I think probably most presentations like that these days on certain types of shows, 
you know, yeah. on something a little bit more sort of fantastical and a bit broader. The big spectacle stuff. It's you. Yes, no, it, you, I, I'm not saying they're better or worse than smaller, you know, location based. That's different. fine. You know, it, it's all about the story and the characters in the end. But but when it's in worlds that are uh, that you're creating, I think people are obviously a little bit more nervous about what those worlds are going to be. So they need to sort of see what they are a little bit more. Whereas if it's something based in you know the Victorian streets of London. It's a little bit easier for people to grab hold of what those images might be. Well, I mean, you can you're pulling real photos. I guess at that point you're pulling actual yes, images. Yeah, on that basis. Pull. I mean, you, you you'll still do concept images and and whatever, sure. but it's, there's an understanding. People know what that architecture is within reason. Sure. Uh, no. All the sort of fantasy films that are coming out, and I think a lot of it's to do with the games world as well. And that whole the the the, the increase in the games world in the last decade, two decades. And concept artists and work. There's just I often wonder when you know in the eighties or the seventies when that position didn't really exist in the film business. Concept artists. I mean, Joe Johnson was probably one of the first people sure. that really came out from that that world. But what did all those people who do that now do in the sixties and the seventies? And they probably they probably had another job, and they just did their artwork as a hobby. Hmm. You know, because there wasn't the avenue apart from maybe illustration in books. Whereas now there are these great, great ways that people who have that creative flair can make a living, you know, whether it's in games, whether it's in films, whether it's in TV. It's just sort of given this whole other career possibility for people who have a, a nice sort of artistic flair about them, which is great. You know, that's good. So do you find it easier to get the idea from your head into a computer or onto a piece of paper? Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookmans. Do you have books, movies, or music gathering dust on your shelves? Give them a new life at Bookmans. They gladly accept trade-ins and buy used media. Clear up some space for new artistic journeys while knowing that your books, movies, and music will find a loving home. On my latest trip to Bookmans, I found a copy of the 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast. This film is an absolute classic and a cinematic treasure that has stood the test of time, captivating audiences for generations now. This film is extraordinary. It weaves a spellbinding tale that touches the heart and ignites your imagination. From the very first frame, the exquisite artistry and attention to detail transport you to a mesmerizing realm of fantasy and wonder. Cocteau's visionary direction infuses each scene with poetic elegance and it allows the story to unfold in a visually stunning and emotionally resonant manner. One cannot help but be captivated by the production design and breathtaking cinematography. The opulent castle, with its haunting corridors and magical rooms, becomes a character in itself. And this isn't like when people say New York is a character in the film. This is a literal character in the film. The ethereal lighting and intricate set pieces create a visual feast that immerses the audience in a realm of enchantment. What truly sets this rendition of Beauty and the Beast apart is its ability to delve beyond the surface and explore the complexities of human nature. The film delves into themes of love, sacrifice, and the transformative power of acceptance. It reminds us that true beauty lies within and that appearances can be deceiving. The allegorical elements presented throughout the story add depth and thought-provoking layers, 
making it a timeless tale with universal resonance. Beauty and the Beast, it's nothing short of a triumph when it comes to storytelling and craftsmanship, a true cinematic gem that continues to captivate audiences even after decades. There's very few things you can see that were made 80 plus years ago, or almost 80 years now, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that still hold up. That stands as a testament to the power and imagination and the enduring appeal of a tale as old as time. If you seek a film that transports you to a world of magic, look no further than this timeless masterpiece. I cannot recommend the film highly enough and recommend that you go to your local Bookman's to unearth your new favorite film. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. The, the, I always said when I first started that the, the first film, feature film I designed was Kafka, the Soderbergh film, after Sex, Lives, and Video State. And yeah. I don't know, it was interesting, an interesting job to get. It was in black and white, it was in color, and it was period. And Stuart Craig was one of my mentors who does all the Harry Potter. He was the one that gave me my first job. And I had a chat with him. I said, you know, what, what's the worst part of <laughs> this process? And he says, the, the blank piece of paper, the first day you have a blank piece of paper. I mean, yeah. You might have things in your head, but you, in those days it was a blank piece of paper. Uh, but he said what you what his advice was, you just have to schedule. You're not going to solve all those problems in a week or a day. You really have to break it down into the overall concepts then get smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, whether you do that on paper or whether you do, I find myself now subject to the, depending on the subject matter, I'll probably go straight into the 3D world. Sure, that makes sense. You could imagine, you could imagine with silo, you know, the idea of this <laughs> silo. You just wanted to get a feel for scale, and that was very, you know, build a tube and look down it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then you start adding more details and scale and everything. But obviously, like dark crystal being very organic and and uh, not straight lines, that becomes a little bit more sketchy when you are needing other people to to 3d model that world that i can't quite do and i'm and i've tried to get into that world but some of the programs the 3d programs the concept guys use and and the visual effects houses are really complicated sure. you know, it takes a long learning process whereas something like vectorworks is very sort of hands-on i understand it it's very simple you build shapes and you put them together you know i'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit but it's sort yeah. of um it, it's it doesn't ask me many questions i think if you speak to most people who work in 3d you'll find you can get so caught down a rabbit hole you know six hours later you can be doing something and you know adding a doorknob to this then whereas really you're sort of it doesn't really matter but you can do it sure also the 3d can't make it up you have to you have to put something in there there's no there's a room for ambiguity you can shade and yeah yes whereas there physically has to be something it could be a simpler thing of than the final thing but mm -hmm. physically something has to be there where obviously with sketches that's a little bit looser on that basis well i'm glad that you brought up kafka because when i look at kafka <laughs> i look at silo as those bookends that they're it makes sense that you would do Kafka a piece of paper that that fits that yes. and it seems almost and models, if you were, paper and models paper and models yeah yes. like going back and doing that now that still might be the right approach for that material yes um, I, I mean interestingly the first thing on a show like that is well any show really the, the prime thing is what can we do on location and what do we have to build that's sure. one of the main things um interestingly on silent we did look for some locations early on 
But it was pretty obvious that as this was one piece of architecture, whatever mm -hmm. it ended up being, it was going to be very hard to find something that had the right geometry or the right feel. So that was really dismissed early on and put a bit of pressure on us to obviously create more in the stage. But whereas, say, in, in Kafka, we we knew we were in Prague and it would there would be great locations there. Amazing but architecture. I remember yeah. looking back some of the things that we thought we would find on location in Prague. We couldn't, so we built it. And the things that we thought we couldn't, uh, we could find, no, we couldn't find, but we did. <laughs> so it, it, the first thing in any part of our job, I think, is either location searching and research. It just covers everything. It's a, that's where the AI thing is quite interesting. That the you know, in terms of you know, if you're um, looking at producing some basic ideas from prompts, that all the AI is doing is basically gathering as many images as it can mm -hmm. of that type and putting them together in in some form. Um, in a way, you know, I'll probably get Nicola, who's our researcher, Nicola Barnes, who I use a lot. Okay, being your silo, let this is our reference points for what we want the architecture to be. Let's gather what we can. And interestingly, I've got a garage full of here of books of reference books that I probably haven't touched for 10 or 15 years because mm -hmm. there came a change where all that, all those images that used to flip through books and photocopy and were all available online. You know, so it completely changed that world. And now AI, in a sense, will do the same. It'll, it, you know, I'm not worried for Nicola's job. It's sort of, you know, if if the AI can gather all that visual information together very quickly, you know, a press of a button, whether it produces what you want is another whole world of, you know, it might give you a few ideas, which is often what the research work does. You know, it's, oh, that's nice. That door's good. That thing. Yeah, you'll get inspiration from many bits of research, and I think um, if AI it starts to produce ideas for, of how you prompt it, it'll never be the finished image, but no. it might be something. Oh, there's a little interesting bit up there. You then obviously have to be sure that it hasn't stolen a bit of copyrighted material. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not talking about strikes, but you know, copyright and strikes are yeah, you know, and, and is all part of the present day discussions going on well i mean yeah that's something that when you're looking into that you could be really building on someone else's artistry and something else that somebody did without I even mean, interestingly you know. but i think what all we would all designers would say probably you're taking the world in anyway what we're we doing anyway yeah you know that's sure. whether you're a costume designer or it's all the stuff you have in your head from years of looking at stuff isn't it it's so Oh, yeah. But do you think there's something to be said for the manual process of research and taking your time and understanding your you mentioned like looking for a doorknob, but then you're looking at these, you know, all these doors from this period. And then you're finding one that has a story behind it. And there's an inspiration there that maybe. Yes, you there get. is. Yes, there is the, the the probably the basis of looking through books is probably a bit laborious in terms of you have to get the book. Yeah. I hope it's the right book. You know, so there's a money thing there involved, you know, and that's what before Nicola used to do that sort of research for us as well. She would scan images from books. Mm -hmm. But there is, what you say is quite relevant in some senses, because when I take location photographs and you'll often take them to, like in a pan right. and, and stick them together to get the wider view where, you know, there are many stitching programs now that you 
and I did do that for a while about 10 years ago, nine or whatever. But I actually prefer to take all those separate images, go into Photoshop and put them together, not manually because I'm on the screen, but right. just what you say, as I'm doing it, I'm looking at the image. I'm really spending five minutes or so on each of those images as I, as the, the laptop sticks them together, so to speak. And I find that it just gives you, if it takes two or three hours for a load of, well, I'm actually really delving into it. So there is an argument for what you're saying, that you don't want things to be too quick. Sure. You need to build in your thinking time as well. well uh, absolutely. Because, you know, if you, the the great films, the great music, anything like that, any artistry that you appreciate, oftentimes it's not on the first watch, the first exposure. It's through time that you appreciate something that you can truly see the beauty in things. It takes you have to be exposed to it for a while before. And, you can and really I think a lot it. of designers would probably say, you know, you'll gather all this information, you'll have soaked it up off the screen. You'll be looking at it. You have things on. You know, you put all the reference on the wall, and yeah. then you'll be you'll be driving home. And in that twenty minutes, thirty minutes of driving home you'll be thinking about those images and yeah. you know, that's a, not a subliminal thing, but it, it, as most designers would say, the job never stops. <laughs> you, know, you don't shut <laughs> yeah. the door and, you know, it's actually the quiet times when you're in traffic that you actually do. Oh, that might be. So luck, luckily, or I suppose by nature, a lot of us can think a little bit in 3D. So you are sort of forming whatever that skill set is, useless or not we've obviously got some understanding of putting together 3d things and you can do that just while you're sitting there looking out of the window that's true that's very which true is my, which is what my school reports always used to say <laughs> you you were you were preparing for your career there <laughs> yeah i think you know with ai very relevant it's, it's really come on and uh it's just taking all that new technology and making sure you don't get lost in the technology sure what you're basically trying to do is still the same thing. And you can get just lost in these little whirlpools of things that, well, I don't really need to be thinking about that. I should be doing this. But I think certain projects, it's just that everybody wants things faster and quicker and cheaper. Well, yeah. So mm. so if, if something allows you to do something a little bit quicker, well, that's not such a bad thing. Although I do remember when did when you know computers first came in in the accounts department, they all seemed to say that, oh, the accounts department is going to be so simple now. There'll be one or two people in there. But now you look at <laughs> the accounts department and there's like twenty people. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like because everything can be analysed. It's you know before it's a bit like I said. It's a bit like trust before you had to trust people were doing things the right way. Now, so I don't know how AI is going to affect all the accounts departments and all of that. That's going to be a whole other and, well, and budgets. <laughs> it, it's it, these things just shift. It seems like where it's there's it moves people into a new field, a discipline that didn't exist yes. before. Where yes, there's going to be prompt writing, <laughs> a part of a career that you'll have to understand for AI. But then there's also going to be combing through those materials that you find and actually validating and looking for copyrighted Im information and actually taking that and building on top of it it's just going to be a different skill set that'll develop out of this that we don't even know what it is yet we're just at the yeah, and i think I, I you know as I'm, i get a bit older you know i need to keep up to date and i enjoy it i enjoy keeping up to date with those things that are coming in you yeah know, we never fully understand and like visual effects i have a good understanding of what visual effects can do and what they can achieve i don't know technically how they 
do it. You know, I can't write the sure. programs or anything, but we just need to know what the possibilities are, A, financially, but also visually, to balance those things out. And I probably couldn't write it down. It's just something that's in your head that you gather through experience. Well, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable to see the shift in, just in your career how it's changed so much over the trajectory of that. It was up with it. <laughs> I always say it was never a plan. It was just, <laughs> I mean, it's like sliding doors. You know, if an opportunity comes up, okay, well, I'll take that. And you do get sometimes pigeonholed. I did do about three or four medieval fantasy films in a row that because yeah. you get known for doing that sort of thing. And I remember we were doing Jack the Giant Slayer with Brian Singer. And it had a really extended prep period because he kept almost going off to do X-Men first class. Right. But he kept us on as an art department because probably, or the producer did, because they probably thought he was going to come back to Jack and the Giant Slayer. And we got about nine months in and, and Brian just wanted to keep seeing more stuff, more work. And they did just get to a point after nine months, I said, I just don't have another castle in me. It's just, you know, it's, they need to get someone else. You know, there's a point where, because sometimes you look back and it's uh, it, it, when we did um, uh, Mute with um, Duncan Jones. The, well, it's, it's a really underrated one. I actually really Netflix enjoyed that show. quite a bit. Yeah, we yeah. had nine weeks. We had nine weeks prep. And I was just looking some of that stuff because um, quite interesting. Uh, Norman, um, John, um, uh, Duncan's over here at the moment. Um, and in nine weeks, you get all that together and you basically you trust your instincts and you trust your gut reaction. Sometimes you can have too long. You know, it could yeah. be, you know, how many times or ways do we have to re rethink? And yet you end up coming back to not where you were, but it's sort of, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I'm just literally looking at new stuff and you right. And I, even I was going, wow, did we do all that in <laughs> nine weeks? Of prep and it was a seven week shoot, you know? So I, it's sort of, in the end, there's no rules about how you do things. So, uh, it, you know, it changes for every script and every and every you could imagine every director has you know different personality and and how they want to do things so and how visual they are and what they need to see to approve stuff that's always the hardest part of the job is although they've seen your work and they see how you work is getting them to have confidence sure. in the first month or two of what you're producing you know just be sure of that so that's why it's always good when you do work with a director a second time, that's brilliant because that whole two or three months of understanding each other is already established. Right. There's a trust there on that basis. You've already had your courtship at that point. Yeah. Though. And I think you know, it, it doesn't, it, you probably get asked by everybody you've worked with to, to work, but just the, 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 the synchronicity of dates and times and schedules, it often doesn't work out for a production designer. Right. Unless they're going to wait for a year for a director to start their next project, it always sort of jumps around a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you know, doing three with George certainly on on you know on the Star Wars, although we were incredibly nervous on the first one, it, it, by the time you get to the second one, it's not that you're lackadaisical or anything, but you understand there's a sort of a trust there on that basis. Well, it's I, I can see why when I look at the work that you've done, I it's just it's really remarkable. And um, Silo, I, I you're doing stuff that would be it belongs on a big screen. When I see this, this does not look like small scale work. It's pretty remarkable. No, and I, I think you know when we were bought on, you know, if we've got 
big screen experience. And I'm saying that's not better or worse. You know, big films it's can different. be terrible and small films can be brilliant. You know, it's, it's not yeah. about that. But you you get sort of, I suppose that's a skill set that people look at me and my team for, that sort of scale. And I think, you know, TV and streaming. I know when we did Dark Crystal, there was, for Netflix, there was a TV budget for crew and a film budget for crew. Sure. And because it's a TV show, we were all on the TV budget, which yeah. is fine, it's a little bit less. But now, in all this, and I think, you know, strikes all streaming services, money, it's all about that because it's like the, the separation of TV and film and streaming is virtually nil. There's no separation, isn't it? It's just all... The expectation I mean, the same. I mean, Mute was 20 million, and that was a feature, in theory, on, on Netflix. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was. Yeah, compared to, you know, Silo, which was 100 and whatever million, you know, you never know the final numbers, sure. which is put down as a TV series. But it's grey area, isn't it? It's uh, No, we're very pleased with it. Um, you know, sometimes you're so close to these things, you have to take a step back and look at them. But if we looked at over 18 months, the the effort and the drama, not a problem, I'm not complaining, to get it all together and come together. Sometimes you've just looked at the show and go, it's interesting, at the beginning you said, looking at Kafka and looking at that, it sounded as though you were saying that's the end of my career. Oh, <laughs> so, no, 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 in a funny way, in a funny way, it was like, oh, there we are. I said, no, no, I, I can do something else. You know, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. On that basis. But I think that was a pretty special project, and we sort of knew it right from the beginning that if we got it right, it was going to going to be good. You never know the story; it's all about characters and story in the end. And if people need to emphasize, emphasize, you know, with that, so we can do whatever we do. But films don't—they never rely; they're never going to work just because it looks good. You, there's plenty of films that had incredible production design that just don't work. Uh, yes, you look at it; it's beautiful to look at, but if the, you don't connect with it. Um, it's just no, it's, not it, there. It's quite right. It's the story and the characters. It, that's what we're there for, is to help tell that story and help move the characters along. Um, so, no, good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. I know we've gone a little bit over here, but it was oh, really yeah, nice so to meet cool. you, and I appreciate it, Gavin. I mean, we were we were quite off of so Is that okay? We talked about a lot of other things other than I, silos. I, I, I mean... I'm fine with that. I, no, I actually I really enjoyed yeah, the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, since since I've started, actually, if, if about two or three months ago, I set up, um, I started putting a, th- a few posts on Instagram mm-hmm. of the behind the scenes of Silo. Oh, cool. Because it's just quite interesting, not the glamour side of it, just yeah. how we did things. And I've now started to do it in this quiet strike period, <laughs> looking at things like Miss Peregrine and going back even back to Young Indy. So I'm starting to mainly for people who are just getting into the art department or whatever, want to see, oh, oh, that's interesting. How do, I see why you did, you know, nobody under, under, you know, sees how we did all that. And that's quite interesting. That's why I was looking at Mute and you suddenly look back and you think, wow, there's a whole lot of information there that people might be interested in seeing, you know, just yeah. as a sort of learning curve on that way. So well, even people that aren't looking at getting into art department people like myself that just love to dive into that stuff that love learning about the creative process there's a then anything that you put out like that there's definitely an audience for it no funny i did have one guy message me and i don't get into a lot of conversation backs and forwards but he did message me and ask me for a key dimension of the silo (laughs) and and i said oh what's that oh he said i'm building a minecraft model of the silo Oh, that's hilarious! That's great. Yeah, get after it, man. So, yeah, so you never know who's who's watching this stuff. You know, you you think it's all film people, 
but it's no. obviously not, you know, on that yeah. basis. But no, I'm always happy to talk about it because it's a uh, it's a fun job and all the backstories that as I would lecture sometimes at colleges, that's that's what the Instagram is sort of doing. People, you know, it's like well, just have a look at what the you know, some very funny things happen on films as well, but that's another story. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Gavin. I really do appreciate it. It was really nice to meet you, man. And uh, stay cool. Now, anytime you want to carry on, I'm always available. That's oh, I, I, I will hold you to that. I, I, will, I would love to chat with you again sometime, man. Thank you. No problem. All right. Have a good day. You too. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, Bye. there you are. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Cowboys crack.